Guys, so I'm gonna hit record. Uh, and so far, we know that Charmin has a Bellagio. No. Oh, okay, gotcha. A bu- Bellage hairstyle. Well, let's get started. One, two, three. Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Chowdhury, and we welcome you to Friday Night Lights where we discuss all things renal and electrolytes. My name is Rad Chowdhury, and I'm Chief Fellow at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. My interest includes onconephrology, glomerular disease, and much to Dr. Toff's dismay, electrolytes as well. Today, we will play an excellent game called Three Truths and a Lie. We have four amazing panelists who'll share a truth or a lie, and we as a group will try to guess if it's real or not. Our panelists will then defend their position. With that in mind, let's introduce our awesome panel. Nicole, take it away. Hi everyone, I'm Nicole Schmidt. I'm a fourth year osteopathic medical student at LMU DCOM in Harrogate, Tennessee. I'll be starting my pediatrics residency at the University of Illinois at Chicago in July, and I'm interested in nephrology and cardiology. Thank you, Nicole. Now, let's give it up for Shri. Shri, why don't you take it away? Hi, everyone. I'm Shrikan Bhattini, an early career nephrologist from Hyderabad, India. I love learning new things, and I'm excited by innovation. Awesome work, Shri. And you're also all the way from India, which is super cool. So thank you so much for making the time zones work for us. And then not to be outdone, we have someone from Europe who's originally from London, UK. Give it up for Sharmi. Sharmi? Hi, everyone. I'm Sharmi. I'm a medical student in the Netherlands at Maastricht University. I've got a clear, clear passion for internal medicine. Really excited to discuss some of the key renal concepts today. Sharmi, thank you so much for joining us as well. And I think we should probably get started on this game. Are you guys ready? All right, let's do this. So without further delay, we'll give it up to Nicole to get the game started. Okay, so you guys will have to decide. Is 3% normal saline something that should typically be used in the treatment of hypodatremic encephalopathy? All right, that is a very loaded question. Now, I am very interested to see what our panelists think. For the audience, I will reframe the statement again. So Nicole's position is that 3% hypertonic saline should be used when someone has altered mental status from severe hyponatremia. What do y'all think? I'm pondering and thinking it's a tough question to ask and answer. To help out our audience and our panelists, I'll try to give you my approach to a dysnatremia question. The first thing I want to know is how low is the sodium? Is it mild or is it very severe? The second thing I'd like to know is this an acute drop or has the patient chronically had a low sodium? And lastly, it's important to know if they're symptomatic. And obviously, in Nicole's statement, she is alluding to the fact that they are altered, correct? So they are indeed symptomatic. 
And I can't emphasize enough how important it is to get a proper history and do a medication reconciliation. All these factors allow me to risk stratify and determine how aggressive I need to be in correcting the sodium problem. So panelists, what do you all think? I'm not quite so, sure because um, there's a lot of uh, facets with respect to understanding hypertonic saline uh, and the way it's correcting this kind of problem, especially in cerebral demyelination patients. Um, so I wonder how this will play out. So this one was actually true. Um, it's something that's frequently taught for correction of hyponatremic encephalopathy, um, which is going to present with nonspecific symptoms of headache, nausea, vomiting, confusion, and lethargy. Uh, the condition can be life-threatening, but the severity of the symptoms do not always correlate with the severity of the hyponatremia, which makes it difficult. There's one main reason providers are usually worried about using the hypertonic saline to correct the problem um, because of the cerebral demyelination in patients that we frequently learn about. So many will use fluid resuscitation or normal saline to attempt to solve the problem. But for patients who have suspected SIADH, especially with a urine osmolality over 550 milliosmoles per kilogram, normal saline can exacerbate the problem due to a further decrease in sodium. And cerebral demyelination is typically seen in patients who've experienced hyponatremia greater than 48 hours and when the plasma sodium is less than 115 milliequivalents per liter. So it's not as frequently seen in those who have acute hyponatremia, so less than the 48 hours, or sodium levels over 120 milliequivalents per liter. Um, there was a, a retrospective study completed in the Geisinger Health System of 1,490 patients, which showed that only 0.5% of patients experienced cerebral demyelination with rapid correction of greater than 8 milliequivalents per liter of sodium over less than a 24-hour period. So these patients also had risk factors that may have contributed to the cerebral demyelination, such as beer potomania, hypokalemia, and malnutrition. So it's really an interesting topic. Nicole, I am super impressed by your understanding of this very complex topic, and you made some phenomenal points that I think need to be re-emphasized. Oftentimes, when we think about hyponatremia and its symptoms, we picture someone seizing, someone completely confused, but we now know that even minor fluctuations of sodium can cause some subtle symptoms like gait imbalances, foggy memories. Actually, if you look at the initial paper, SALT-1 or SALT-2, when they slowly corrected the sodium regardless of the method that was used, it actually improves their mental testing scores. But severe hyponatremia, like you said, Nicole, is sort of a beast of its own, right? Because you're always worried about that dreaded complication of correcting too fast, too much, and having osmotic demyelinating syndrome. And Nicole, you also mentioned some great risk factors for ODS. You mentioned hypokalemia, poor PO intake, liver disease. So keep that in mind. When you're managing severe symptomatic hyponatremia, if you look at the expert opinions by Dr. Stern, uh, my program director, Dr. Rondon, 3% is a great tool in severe hyponatremia, but you should also consider adding a DDAVP quote-unquote clamp in adjunct, and this is known as a proactive strategy. 
And the idea is that by adding the DDAVP, you're mitigating rise in sodium to prevent overcorrection without getting too much into the weeds of the physiology. But that's a great, great truth, Nicole, and I appreciate how you beautifully you explained it. Now let's move on to our next position statement. Let's go back to Sri and let him take over. Thanks, Rod. So here's my question. Does hypercalcemia have a loop-like effect? What are your views, guys? This is a great position statement, especially for the wards and especially when you're teaching medical students and residents. I'm excited to hear what you have to say, Sri. To me, it's a slam dunk truth. When we talk about calcium, we are reminded of the bones immediately. While calcium plays a phenomenal role in bone and mineral metabolism, it also acts as a cofactor in various cellular processes. The most notable among these is calcium coupling the excitation contraction mechanism in muscle. What about the role of the kidney in calcium metabolism? Calcium is reabsorbed up to 98% in the kidney. The proximal tubule reabsorbs up to 60% of filtered calcium, followed by the thick ascending loop of Henle, which reabsorbs 25%. The distal convoluted tubule and the collecting tubule reabsorb 10% and 2% respectively. The reabsorption of calcium in the proximal tubule is mainly by convective transport aided by the drag created by salt and water reabsorption. The thick ascending loop, however, has a complex but beautiful mechanism underlying calcium reabsorption. It involves passive paracellular transport triggered by a transcellular sodium, potassium, and chloride reabsorption by the NKCC channel. The NKCC channel in turn is stimulated by the lumen-positive transepithelial voltage created by the renal automedullary potassium channel, also called the ROMK, ROMK channel. The basolateral aspect of the thick ascending loop has a calcium-sensing receptor, which when stimulated by calcium, inhibits the ROMK channel. The ROMK channel that is responsible for maintaining a lumen-positive electrical gradient is thus under the influence of extracellular calcium via calcium-sensitive receptor. So, does calcium cause a diuretic effect? Let's find out. We now understand that hypercalcemia excites the calcium-sensitive receptor, which in turn inhibits the rhombic activity, thus causing a block in the NKCC channel. This blocks the reabsorption of sodium, potassium, chloride, and ammonia, and also inhibits the passive paracellular divalent cation reabsorption. Hence, hypercalcemia leads to a loss of solute akin to loop diuretic use. But wait, there are other ways by which calcium causes a diuretic effect. The solute loss by inhibition of NKCC in hypercalcemia overwhelms the capacity of the distal tubule leading to diuresis. This loss of salt reabsorption eventually drains the medullary tonicity, which impairs water reabsorption in the medulla. So, 
more diuresis. Is that it? No, calcium isn't your regular ion. It has got one more trick up its sleeve. There's a third mechanism by which calcium causes a diuretic effect. Hypercalcemia causes post-transcriptional downregulation of hyperporin 2 in the collecting tubule. It also inhibits translocation of aquaporin 2 to the apical membrane of the principal cells in the collecting duct. Thus, water reabsorption in the collecting tubule is also inhibited by hypercalcemia. Hence, calcium has a loop effect and it's not an overstatement. Thank you, Srikant, for that beautiful explanation. So once again, just to summarize what Srikant said, Hypercalcemia does have a loop-like effect. Hypercalcemia stimulates this receptor in the thick ascending limb of the loop of Henle. The receptor is known as the calcium-sensing receptor. When that is stimulated through multiple ways, it inhibits the NKCC2 transporter. Now, that is the same co-transporter that is the target of loop diuretics. So, in short... By inhibiting NKCC2, you get a net loop-like effect. And this is why it's so important in hypercalcemia to volume replete the patient. If not, with hypercalcemia, you're going to continue to lose volume and your proximal tubules is going to want to reabsorb sodium thinking your volume down. And as you know, when you reabsorb sodium, you also reabsorb water. Now, paradoxically, that process will also cause you to retain more calcium in the proximal tubules. So to break this vicious cycle, the first step in managing hypercalcemia is fluids, fluids, fluids. That's a very concise explanation. I need to digest it afterwards. So I've been set the task of hyperkalemia and vomiting causes gastrointestinal wasting of potassium. Truth or lie? Ooh, that's a, that's a good one. Uh, I wonder what you guys think. I'm going to go with that being a lie, that nausea and vomiting causes gastrointestinal losses of potassium. Let's see what Charmy thinks. Very complicated etiology to hyperkalemia caused by vomiting. So quite often you're finding the potassium concentration in gastric fluid is quite low. Volume-wise, depletion and metabolic alkalosis can often lead to increased renal potassium excretion when vomiting occurs. So when we're getting hyperkalemia uh, and it comes on suddenly, you have these very, very high levels of potassium and then you start to feel heart palpitations, shortness of breath, chest pain, nausea or vomiting. Now, potassium depletion itself is most often caused by an increase in urine losses. So even if vomiting may induce fluid loss via the GI tract. Now, when looking at stomach um, secretions, they're only pivoting around 5 to 10 um, milli EQ liters. And metabolic alkalosis and a high plasma bicarbonate are normally caused by the loss of stomach acid. So the distal potassium secretory site um, receives the water and the sodium bicarbonate from the renal tubules. Vomiting itself causes an increase in the aldosterone release, which may lead to hypovolemia. Now, it is this hypokalemia that results from this combination of these two effects. 
So when we're looking at the source of hypokalemia, the lab tests need to really look at the potassium levels uh, in the urine, acid-base balance, urine chloride, and blood pressure. So yeah, there is a lot to unpack, and it depends on a number of factors also. But it was something that I definitely needed to look into a bit more depth because it's not something that I frequently come across. And it's quite a nuanced thing to look at, especially um, if you perhaps don't have the experience as of yet, like myself. So Rad, Nicole I, I, and Shri, I asked for your guidance on this uh, to help me unpack this further. Sharmi, this is a fantastic point uh, and one that needs to be summarized as well. So what Charmy is proposing is that the main mechanism of hypokalemia is not GI losses when you're vomiting. It's actually renal losses. She states that in the GI tract, there isn't a substantial amount of potassium content. So there are two main renal mechanisms. First, when you have loss of gastric fluids, you lose acid and therefore you're in a state of metabolic alkalosis. And therefore, your serum bicarb levels are high. When your serum bicarb levels are high, your kidneys will want to renally excrete sodium bicarb. And by doing so, there will be more distal delivery of sodium, which will then trigger further potassium wasting via ROMK and various flow-mediated mechanisms. The second part to this equation is the fact that when you have loss of gastric fluids, you're usually volume depleted, and therefore there's activation of the RAS system, further causing calyuresis in the distal nephron. Wow. Awesome job, Sharmi. Thank you so much. This was great, guys. Now that we have our true truths and a lie out of the way, and we've learned so much, I want to pay homage to NefJC's Freely Filtered with our own segment called Weekly Spotlight. I will ask each one of the panelists to give a shout out to one topic, book, organization, whatever your heart desires to raise awareness about it. Nicole, why don't we start with you? Give us your weekly spotlight. I really want to give a big shout out to the Healthcare Leadership Academy and Medics Academy um, on their leadership programs that they're delivering globally. Um, it's a really exciting social enterprise. So please, please, please get your applications in before the deadline. I look forward to uh, seeing all your applications, Rad, Nicole, and Shri. I just also wanted to add, it's also really important to recognize the myth of mer meritocracy, especially in women in medicine. Um, it's only by consciously being aware of identifying inherent unconscious gender biases are we able to dismantle the myth of meritocracy. Um, it's also really important to kind of understand that visible female role models are really important for um, an array of clinicians across the world. The Healthcare Leadership Academy is doing fantastic work with women in healthcare leadership also. So I wanted to give them a shout out as well. I wonder if our listeners realize that I said Nicole and then Charmy took over uh, and did a whole monologue. <laughs> Hopefully this makes it to the final cut. Having said that, Charmy, that's such a beautiful cause and we support you and you can let us know how we can help in advancing this cause. But strong work. And now we'll give it away to Nicole. Take it away, Nicole. So for my shout out, I recently started reading a book called Women in White Coats, How the First Women Doctors Changed the World of Medicine by Olivia Campbell. I highly, highly recommend it to everyone who's in medicine. 
Um, it talks about the stories of Elizabeth Backwell, Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, and Sophia Jex Blake, who were some of the earliest women doctors during the 1800s. They broke down barriers to introduce women as doctors, and in doing so, made a huge difference in women's health around the world. And it's just been so great to learn more about the history of medicine and these women's large part in it. I will definitely let you know how it turns out once I actually finish the book. You know, Nicole, I have a fun fact for you, actually. And I, I read about this some time back, that the first women's medical college was actually in Pennsylvania. Um, I think it was established sometime in the mid-1800s. Um, but then it was amalgated with uh, Drexel University. But uh, just a fun fact. And speaking of which, do you have any shout outs for any female physicians, scientists, powerful women role models in your life? And speaking about women in medicine and just mentors, just a big shout out to Dr. Manamudu. Even though we only met a couple short months ago on my pediatric nephrology rotation that I started in January, I believe, I've still learned so much and done so many things that I didn't think I'd do, like, you know, writing articles or tutorials or just helping out with Ithna JC. It's just been very, very wonderful getting to know her and being able to participate in so many different things in just the past couple of months. So a big thank you to Dr. Ed. All right, guys, I think we need to close this one out for now before we go on more tangents. But thank you all for listening and joining. Thank you to our panelists, Charmy, Nicole, Sri. You guys have been phenomenal. You guys are the leaders in what you do in medicine. Nicole and Charmy, the future is so bright to have you guys uh, and do the things that you guys are doing. Thank you for joining us. And until next time, we'll be back with more Friday Night Lights.